Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 31. Y'all settle in. (laughs) They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. 
Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for reading that long passage. <clears throat> so good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here, and uh, it is my privilege to uh, be with you this morning. Uh, thanks for bearing with that long reading because I just couldn't figure out how to splice this text up to make it any less than what it is. And I really wanted us to experience the whole thing, to be honest, because uh, this, is, this is a text that's picked up in the uh, New Testament a bunch. It is a, it is a paradigmatic uh, example of what it means to be the people of God and to have God miraculously pro provide for you day after day after day, which is what life with him is. And so I just really wanted us to sit with it because I can't, in the, the short few minutes that I have, say everything. And so I'm really frustrated because there's so much here. And maybe we'll have to come back this, uh, to this at another, another date. I don't know. Uh, but we're doing these three weeks from, from Exodus 15, 16, and 17, which is a series of three stories that are meant to be taken together. And they describe Israel's journey with the Lord through the wilderness and his supernatural, miraculous provision for them. After he brought them up out of Egypt, they did not go directly into the promised land, we learn here. They took a left turn, as Bugs Bunny would say at Albuquerque, when they should have taken a right turn, and headed out in the wrong direction, away from where God said he was taking them into this desolate place. Now, last week, if you have a Bible and you could just look back one chapter at the very last verse of chapter 15, you'll see we left them at Elam. But now they're setting out because... Uh, in Elam, where there are 12 springs of water, we're told there, verse 26 or 27 of chapter 15. So it's this, this place of natural resources that do not require them to trust the Lord and to look to him for provision. Uh, they're setting out now because Elam is the, the exception and not the rule in, in their life with, with the Lord. God is gracious to give times of rest and refreshment, but in this text, as in really all of life, all of the action happens in the wilderness. Their time in Elam is really just given one verse in the whole scope of what, what we're told here. Everything else, everything else, all the details in these chapters are about their time in the desert where there is no water, where they need God to supernaturally provide for them because that's where the people of faith live. It's where you and I live. And so the Israelites left this oasis behind and went further, even further, into the desert at God's command. And that's the point of the pin drop. There in verse 1, if you see it there, it says they go out into the wilderness to sin between Elam and Sinai. 
And so they're going deeper and deeper into the desert. It's already been hard, and the Lord is saying, guess what, guys? It's about to get even harder. They're leaving the place of, they're leaving the place of comfort and safety and security, just as they did when they left Egypt. And again, here at God's command. And so the point, I think, for them, they had to be wondering, the point that probably many of you are wondering, the point that I wrestled through as I prepared this talk was, why does God lead this way? What is God doing? What, what is the purpose of the way God leads his people as an example of the way that he leads us? And I think uh, there's something very significant. A few weeks ago, when we were reading in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's sermon there before he is stoned to death by Paul and the religious leaders, I was arrested by the way he described Israel's time in the wilderness. So if you remember, Stephen starts to give kind of a, an account of the history of Israel. And when he talks about this part of their history, this wandering in the wilderness between their time in Egypt and their time in the promised land, in chapter 7, verse 39, he says this. He says, our fathers refused, get this, okay, you got to catch this. He said, our fathers refused to obey God, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. In their hearts they turned toward Egypt. And I think the lesson there is that getting them out of Egypt was easy. But getting Egypt out of them was the hard part. I mean, it took the Lord a day to get them out of Egypt, but it would take 40 years to get Egypt out of them, and then, and then even then, not completely. Their hearts kept turning to Egypt because in Egypt, you see, you don't, you don't have to trust the Lord. They were slaves, sure, but at least they had food and water and relative, a relative sense of security, and they would rather be slaves in Egypt than be free and have to trust God. And I want you to think about that. They would rather be slaves than to be free and have to trust the Lord. And I want to say it's, that same thing is true of you and it's true of me as well. Our hearts turn to Egypt too because Egypt is the place of good things without God. Did you hear that? Egypt is the place of good things without the Lord. The wilderness is the place of hard things, but with the Lord. And in the story as it is told to us, Egypt, this fertile Nile River basin, is a place of abundance. And yet, if you remember, there is no bread there. And then this desert place, this barren place where the, where the people are traveling, and yet there's bread. So there's not bread where there should be. There is bread where there shouldn't be. And the lesson, I think, is this, that for the Christian and for the non-Christian, here's what I want to say to you. The very best circumstances without God is a place of death in the very worst circumstances but if you have God is a place of sweetness because the man was sweet and so they experienced this sweetness let me say that again the very best circumstances without God is a place of death the very worst set of circumstances but if you have the Lord can be a place of sweetness that's what this lesson that's that's really what the story is about and we see three things as we normally do, there's probably more, but we kind of stick the three around here typically. And I want you to see just the habit, the lesson, and the rescue that take place in this story. So there's a habit that they're to live by daily bread. There's a lesson that they need more than bread, but then there's also the rescue because this text ultimately points us to Jesus, who we're told is the bread of life. And so we'll just walk through um, these verses in those three headings. So if, if you want to look there first... The first thing that we learn, I think, from the text is that the Christian life is a daily, sometimes even moment by moment, dependence upon God for everything. Jesus taught us to pray. How did he teach us to pray? 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And so like the people in this story, we are forced even, I think, by the way the Lord deals and works with us to live in such a way that we must ask for daily bread. And if that's the case, then we need habits for living in daily dependence. And that's what this text is about. So in Deuteronomy 8, uh, verses 1 through 6, which Patrick read a few minutes ago, you really, you really need to have those verses loaded up in your, in your mind as we take a look at the details here in Exodus chapters 15, 16, and 17. Because in Deuteronomy 8, 40 years later, when they're on the verge of entering the promised land, after the 40 years in the wilderness, Moses looks back and he reflects on the way of God's leading them. And it's such an important passage about what God was doing with these people and, and, what he's, and why he's doing it the way that he is choosing to do it. And, and so we probably should read it again. But here's what the verses say. It says, remember, Moses is telling them, remember the whole way the Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so it says that God took them into the wilderness. And it says, okay, we have to load this up into our theology. From It says he let them hunger. He brought them after three days with no water to Mara, where the water was bitter and undrinkable. He took them after that even further into the desert where there was no food. He orchestrated all of their needs so that, that he could meet that need and they would learn to look to him and not to themselves. And then here in chapter 16 with the manna, he forced them into this daily routine of trusting him. So the only way, for, for 40 years, the only way that they would have the food they needed was if the manna came. And so notice the instructions, uh, verses 19 and 20. Let no one leave any of it over till the morning, but they did not listen. Some left part of it till morning, and it became worms, and it stank. And they learned the lesson quickly after that, because in verse 21, we're told, morning by morning, they gathered it. So I want you to see, listen, every day for 40 years, they woke up, and the only way there was bread was if God provided it, and he did, every single day. And every day, every day, they woke up completely dependent upon the Lord for what they needed. And if they tried to provide for themselves, if they tried to set aside a little bit, just in case, you know, tomorrow ended up being a bad day, it became worms and stank. The Lord would not let them live any other way. You have to trust me today. You're going to have to trust me tomorrow. You're going to have to trust me the day after that. This is the way this is going to work. And so I think if we want to apply this, we should ask, why, what does this mean for us? And I think... It means that we need to change the way we think about what it means for God to be at work in our lives. And I want to say the prosperity gospel preachers are wrong. God's way is not to make you healthy and wealthy and strong and full so that you never have any needs. I think what this teaches is that he takes away health and wealth and strength at times to teach us faith. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. The Christian movement began with John the Baptist out, going out into the wilderness. Jesus began his earthly ministry sent by the Spirit into the wilderness, because the wilderness for people of faith is home. And if you're intent on building a life where you don't have to trust God daily, be really, really careful. It's a dangerous thing to do. And so we need, because nobody, nobody likes to live this way. Nobody, not even, our hearts so easily turn back to Egypt. Oh, in that case, let's just go back to Egypt because, yeah, we were slaves there, but at least we weren't forced into this kind of daily, we don't know if God's going to provide for us tomorrow or not. And so like them, we need then daily habits 
or habits for daily discipline. And there are a couple of them in the text that I think are really helpful for us. So first, you see that God commands that they gather only what they need for that day and then trust him for tomorrow. So this is verses 16 through 21. And I just don't have the time to go into all the details. But here's some of the implications for us. Uh, well, you know, in, first, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul uses this text and uses it as a model, the principle as a model of generosity within the Christian community. So he says, your abundance supplies another's need. And some other time, they might have an abundance that will meet, that'll be, that'll be the thing that will meet your need. And then he quotes verse eight, 18 from the passage, if you look there, that, that whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So here's what Paul's saying. He's saying your security for the future is not what you can lay aside with whatever extra you have. Rather, it is the consistent generosity of God to make sure that the community always has enough. And then the generosity within the community in obedience to God to make sure that no one has too much and no one has too little. And so take what you need for today and trust God for tomorrow. And if you try to secure your future with today's abundance, it will create spiritual rot. Now, I know. I know that's hard. I know it's hard. I know it cuts against so much of our cultural values. I'm not sure in our context how to even implement it. But that is what God commands. So I stand before you as a person who just does not know how we even begin to go there, but I hope maybe we can figure out how to reach into it a little bit. So there's this, trust God for tomorrow. Don't use, your, don't use whatever extra you have today to secure your future, but trust the Lord through the community to do that. But then secondly, notice, this is a text about Sabbath as well. And so in verses 22 through 30, God institutes the Sabbath for these people. So on the Sabbath, he said, there will be no quail and no manna. And so they were to gather, gather enough for two days, and it was an act of faith because when they, tried, when they tried before to hold it over until the next day, you know, it bred worms and stank, but not this time because it was the Sabbath. And so it, God gave them this day of rest, and I just want you to think about what that must have been like for these people who had been slaves. They'd never had a day off. And the Lord said, here, here I'm going to give you every week a day of no work. Don't even go out, he says. Don't even, don't even, just don't even go, you know, try to work and do anything. And so the Sabbath is a weekly habit of dependence. It is a declaration, even for us, that our lives are dependent upon God's work for us and not our work. And so my question is, are you practicing Sabbath? It says that some did not listen. They went out to gather on the Sabbath and there was nothing there. And I think the principle here is if you work and refuse to rest, you won't get what you're after. It won't make you any happier. You won't get any more done. The promise consistently in the Bible is that God will work in such a way to provide for you so that you get more done in six days than you would in seven. So take a break and trust him because every week your heart needs to be retrained into the reality of trust and daily dependence because we so long, our hearts are so prone toward Egypt. Now, that's the habit. Man, and there's some challenging things in there. I would love to figure out how to really sit and have a conversation about what it looks like to implement those things, and maybe we can do that. But the second thing is, is there's a lesson. And in Deuteronomy, it says God did this this way because there were things they needed to know that they didn't know. So Deuteronomy 8, 2 again, he humbled you, made you to hunger and fed you with manna that he might 
make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. And you see it here in Exodus 16. So look at verse, verses 6 and 7. At evening, the quail are going to come, God says, and you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. And the same thing is repeated later on in verse 12. At twilight, you will eat meat, and in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Why? So that then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so what Moses is saying here is even though all they've seen all of these things, God's done all of these miraculous things to bring them out of Egypt, they still don't know. They've still forgotten so quickly what he had done for them, who he was. They didn't trust him. And so these were the spiritual muscles that God sent them into the wilderness to develop. And the key word, I think, there is the word glory, which means weight or significance or, or even reality. And so when they start to grumble, as they do at the beginning of the chapter here, it's because their circumstances had become the greater reality in their life. They were looking to God and looking at God through the lens of their circumstances, which is unbelief. What they needed was to see the glory of God, Moses says, and to know that God is the greater reality. They should have been looking at their circumstances through the lens of what they knew to be true of God, not the other way around. But they didn't know it yet. That was their problem. Not even after the plagues. Not even after the Red Sea, as hard as that might be for us to, to fathom. And so we learn here that you cannot live a life of obedience to God unless he is your greatest reality. That's what it means to see his glory. As Paul said in Romans chapter 4, Abraham who is the model of faith for the people of faith, did not lose faith in God when he considered his old age and Sarah's barrenness, the circumstances that were so against uh, the promise of God. He didn't lose faith, but it says he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. He needed the glory, see? He needed a, he needed a fresh understanding of God's glory so that God became the greatest, the, the weightiest, and the, and the most real thing in his life and not whatever he was looking at in his circumstances. Let me say it another way. The lesson of the wilderness is to go to God not for the things we need, but as the thing we need. I think Tim Keller said that. I probably shouldn't take credit for that because that, that, uh, that unlocks some things for me this week, to be honest with you. To go to him not for the things we need, but as the thing we need. The wilderness is where all of our other sources of strength and security dry up and God is all that's left. The things that are a source of comfort and hope are taken away. And your first impulse is to go to God and ask him to give them back to you. But he gives you himself instead, which is far, far better. And so the things you think you need, you don't really need. All you need is him. The problem is, because of the way our hearts work, and this is just this is an obstacle of the Lord's working in our lives, the problem is, is that you and I, we will never realize that he's all we need until he's all we have. There's an old... John Newton hymn that goes like this. It's called, I Ask the Lord. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And then he goes on to describe in the hymn, he expects some favored hour, some, <laughs> some time of sweet communion with the Lord where God would do this great work in his heart and it would just be warm and fuzzy and it would, oh, it would just be a wonderful thing and it doesn't happen that way at all. He goes on, he says, yay, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. <laughs> Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. That's the way God works. And then he says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? And here's the answer. 
It's in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. And that's the lesson of the wilderness. God breaks our scheme of earthly joy. I just, I love that line. I mean, don't, because it's so true, I have, I, if you know me at all, you know I'm a point, I have so many schemes for earthly joy. And yet, the, John Newton says, God works in such a way to break all of our schemes of earthly joy because if you have bread, but you don't have him, it will never be enough. But if you have him, even without all the things you're scheming that you think you need, even without bread, if you have him, even minus whatever fair designs you're planning for your life, it's enough. He's enough. Just before we move on to finish up here, I want to go back to grumbling again, okay? You didn't think I was going to leave the passage and not talk about it again because <laughs> it's there. And it's such a big deal. Of these, it's such a big part of these three stories in, in these chapters. And so just a minder, just a reminder, we tend to grumble when we're not in control and when we don't like the way things are going. We tend to grumble against whoever we think is making the decisions that we don't agree with because it feels so bad to be out of control. But we usually get it wrong. And Moses reminds the people, he says, what are we, verse 8, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And that's almost always true. We tend to blame people because it's easier than blaming God. We know we shouldn't blame God, and so we deal forgetfully of him on a horizontal level with people. And so grumble is unbelief in two ways. It forgets the Lord. It forgets he's really the one we should be dealing with. And it also accuses him because what the grumble is saying, when we grumble, we're, we're saying, don't, don't water this down. When we grumble, we're saying to the Lord, you're not enough. Your job, your job is to get me the things I want. You're not what I want. You see, most every time you're tempted to grumble, this is so profound for me, okay? I, I, I can't wait to share, you, share this with you this morning because it's so profound for me because most of the times when I grumble, when we grumble, when we're tempted to do this, it is because God is working in some way, breaking our schemes for earthly joy and inviting us into a deeper knowledge of his love through some kind of loss through some kind of weakness, through some kind of need, and the grumble says, the thing you're taking away, I'd rather have that than have more of you. And that's why it's such a big deal. And why we need to run from it into the habit of thanksgiving as much as we possibly can. Oh, man. I feel the weightiness of that even this morning. We need a rescue, don't you? Do you feel it? We need God to come and get us out of Egypt like he did for these people. But even more than that, we need for him to come and get Egypt out of us. And that's the last thing, the rescue, because the manna here is a type of the true bread of heaven. And in John 6, Jesus Christ said, If it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Matthew chapter 4, just like Israel here, except he was 40 days with no food. And that just blows my mind because 40 minutes with no food and I start to get a little grumbly, if you know what I'm saying. I didn't have time for a good breakfast this morning. I'm a little, I'm a little hangry. 
he was 40, 40 days with no food. And if you remember, if you remember there, um, there's a temptation. Satan presents a temptation for him to turn a stone into bread, which presumably he could have done. And yet with these words, with these very words from Deuteronomy, he resists and answers that temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone because he knew even in his hunger, he knew even in his hunger that there was something that he needed more than bread, that he could have bread, but he would have to lose God or he could have God with no bread. And he chose the Lord with no bread. Israel failed the test in Exodus 16. This is a test, verse 4 says, and they failed, but Jesus passed the test. He is the true Israel. He's the true Adam, and that is why he is also the true bread from heaven, because bread is not enough. Good circumstances are not enough. Remember what I said at the beginning. The best circumstances without God is a place of death, and the very worst circumstances, but with God, is a place of sweetness, or at least it can be. And so Jesus Christ came to solve our greatest need, that in our sin, we are alienated from our creator, and he is the way to rightness with God through his obedient life and death upon a cross. In his obedience, he's made it possible for us to have the righteousness before God that we need so that we can be counted ones as passed the test as well in him. And in his death, he's put away our sins so that we can be forgiven and accepted into God's family as his children. And if you try for rightness with God any other way, it will never be enough. You will forever be hungry, it says. You won't be satisfied. There will always be something that's missing. But if you come to him and if you believe in him, if you put your whole hope and trust in the work that he has done for you, you will never hunger or thirst again. You will finally have the peace and joy you've been searching for because in Jesus, you get more than bread. You get the thing you really need to live. You get God's words. You get God's life. You get God himself. Isn't that good news? But the challenging part is that you have to go on a journey of faith. You have to step out into your need. Right in the middle of the chapter, it says this in verse 10. Don't miss it. It says that as Moses began to talk to the people, they looked, they looked toward the wilderness. Remember, where had they been looking in their heart? They've been looking back toward Egypt. And here they turn their eyes and it says they looked toward, don't miss it, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud in the wilderness. It was an invitation to come out. Where was the glory? It wasn't in Egypt. It wasn't in Elam. It was out in the wilderness because that's where God is. And that's where God takes his people. So go. Go, whatever wilderness he's calling you into, go. He will provide for you. He has sent Jesus, the true bread of heaven, to meet your greatest need. Trust him for everything else. And if you would say this morning, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, then run to this table for the encouragement and the assurance that God gives. Amen? Let's pray. Will you pray with me? So, Father, as we uh, prepare now to come and eat this bread and drink from this cup, would you work on our hearts right there where we are most prone? Because, I mean, because we just love comfort, let's be honest, we, we just love for things to be comfortable and easy and not hard. And we'd rather have that without you than to have you, but to have to live with all the difficulty of everything else. And so come now and, and change that. Come and, and give us such a sweet 
abiding taste of your glory and your goodness that we truly would say, man, I'll do whatever it takes to have you. I'll go wherever you send me. Just more of you. You're enough. Uh, may we in these moments reverse the, the grumble of our hearts. Silence that grumble in us and replace it with gratitude. This, this meal is called the Eucharist. It's a thanksgiving. It's an expression of gratitude to you. And so would you fill our hearts with gratitude, not grumbling? Would you give us a greater sense of your glory so that we would have the courage we need to follow you where you lead? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we set out from Elam <laughs> into whatever wilderness uh, meets us outside these doors, uh, be reminded that it is a wilderness of your father's making. Uh, and so these words go with you, that he is, in fact, uh, doing good. Uh, and what, and, and, and horrible, difficult circumstances sometimes. And so reach out in your heart uh, for the truth of these words. These are the words that are more than bread. Uh, that we're meant to live on, these, these promises of God's love for us and his uh, willing to work all things together to bless us and to turn his face towards us. No matter what you face, if your faith is in Jesus, you go with him. That's what this means. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.